Hello, my name is Justin the Clue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today, we're talking about someone that's near and dear to me and Will. Yep, that's right, the star of Jack Reacher. <laughs> and if you didn't like him in that, perhaps you enjoyed him in Mr. Lonely. <laughs> Oh, the classic Jared Leto vehicle? Or a little film called The Grand. (laughs) With Zach Penn. Zach Penn. Actually, he's made two films with Zach Penn. He also did Incident at Loch Ness. Um, Oh, man, I remember that one would haunt the Rogers video shelves in the U section. What a crazy... Okay, we're talking about Werner Herzog, (laughs) first of all. Wasn't it crazy that Incident at Loch Ness got a huge video store push? So massive. I mean, that's, that's a movie that's strictly for the diehard Werner Herzog completists. <laughs> and I feel like there's a lot of diehards out there. Oh, yeah. Because Werner Herzog is the guy that I feel that, like, when you become a cinephile, you go towards right away. And I can confirm that because I think that he was really the first of those big international art house guys that I loved. And I'm going to admit, I didn't come to him till probably after college. Mm. I was like a a Casper Hauser, leaving my (laughs) cave, not knowing who I should watch or what I should watch. Because as I've said many times before, I grew up in a small town. When I was in junior high and high school, nobody I liked watched movies. We didn't even have a cinema Mm. in our small town. So, like, maybe we'd see, like, the biggest uh, pictures that were coming out, like Team America World Police. But other than that, I was all by my lonesome. Well, I will say also that being a 13-year-old Werner Herzog fan... It didn't necessarily mean I saw... You're much smarter than everybody else. Well, it didn't necessarily mean I saw all his films or even really understood the ones I saw. Well, actually, no. Okay, the first thing is... I think younger people can gravitate towards Werner Herzog because much of what's great about his movies is Mm self-evident. He is a great and imaginative capturer of interesting images. Eh, He's a lovable weirdo. That's what people like about him. He's also a lovable weirdo. Yes. Uh, But I think the the first of his films I saw was Nosferatu because Mm -hmm. it was at video stores. And then I think later I saw Aguirre. And then I saw one of the movies we're going to watch today, which we'll get to. And Strozak as well. Those were probably the first four I saw. But you know, he's somebody who Roger Ebert often wrote about very eloquently. Yeah, there's a book of Roger Ebert mm-hmm. uh, Herzog yeah. reviews. Which, you know, I tried reading it again this weekend. It's really not that great. <laughs> I mean, Herzog is a guy that, like you said, what's good about his movies is very evident. It's very tangible. Mm-hmm. Like, you watch something like Aguirre, The Wrath of God... And you can tell, like, they shot in the jungle, and it was tough. Klaus Kinski is there, just... I mean, he's not hamming it up, but he's, he's like, there, chewing the scenery. Yeah, you know, you, in Fitzcarraldo, pulls a boat over a mountain. Mm-hmm. It's an incredible thing to see. But also, if you're, you know, a young male getting interested in film, and you're very interested in these, like super manly self-styled auteur directors there's no one manlier and more self-styled than this guy herzog loves to say that he's not an artist and that like he views films as like an aesthetic craft because that's what he loves he loves to be a craftsperson i saw an interview once where he said something like you know, he like a director like works with his hands and he said, you can tell that Woody Allen has never milked a cow. (laughs) So Werner Herzog 
He's a great publicist for himself. Oh, yeah. He's, like, really good at this shit. Not sure if you've heard it, but he was born in a small Bavarian village, and he did not make his first phone call until he was 17. And what we're going to read on this episode, it's an, all an Andy Kaufman-like act. <laughs> when he goes behind doors, it just drops, and he's like, hey, how's it going? My name's Herzog. I'm sure you've heard all the stories, uh, holding a gun up to Klaus Kinski on the set of Aguirre, The Wrath of God, mm-hmm. uh, which isn't actually true. I think he just threatened to shoot him. Yeah. I Again, pulling a boat over a mountain, hypnotizing the whole cast of Heart of Glass. All these acts that have come to define him, like eating a shoe when mm. he lost a bet to Errol Morris. Or going and filming at that volcano that was about to burst, mm-hmm. which didn't actually end up bursting. Like, there's a bit of a Guinness World Records quality to his public persona that, you know, has done wonders to turning him into one of the most famous art house filmmakers ever, but also has inspired some skepticism towards him as well. You know, I think that was probably what I was experiencing when I finally became aware of who he was, was this level of skepticism. Mm -hmm. The fact that he was everyone's favorite filmmaker. Mm -hmm. That kind of like, well, have you seen Fitzcarraldo? And Mm -hmm. it's like, yeah, I have. Like, I remember going to like a little theater in the back of a bar to watch My Best Fiend. And Uh it was like the classic image of hipsters, like all laid out on these couches going, "Mm -hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, as it played out. My Best Fiend, by the way, is not my favorite Werner Herzog movie. Mm -hmm. I think it's okay, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. it's such a it's such a obvious like bit of brand management. Mm-hmm. You know, it's him saying, "Well, listen, you heard those stories about us threatening each other on the set of Aguirre, but don't get me wrong, he was the crazy one." And here's my quote unquote affectionate documentary about how he's crazy. I think that kind of brand management is something that I don't know if I consciously like rebelled against it, but it's something I didn't like, and because I didn't discover mm-hmm. it as I'm like discovering mm-hmm. all these figures and so he could like stand out and be someone who did all this crazy stuff like mm-hmm. do you think that Antonioni like <laughs> climbed a mountain I don't think so but Herzog did yeah and that's something that like I don't know. It just rubbed me the wrong way. Yeah, I I understand that. I mean, I should say that Herzog is one of my favorite filmmakers, Mm -hmm. and I think he is the real deal. I think that he does have, you know, his less brilliant moments, and he has his less admirable traits, as all filmmakers do. I know that some have accused him of being, like, occasionally being a bit of a Randian, but I don't actually believe that. Well, politically, Um, you know, Herzog seems to be all across the map, depending on, like, where you want to attack him by, and that's something that's gone throughout his career. Well, the charge that he's kind of a Randian is, I think, more directed at the way he presents himself in Burden of Dreams, Mm -hmm. where he's like, oh, I'm this genius filmmaker. I mean, he always says that. He's like, you have to believe it, you have to go for it. But really, the figures that are in his movies, like Aguirre and Fitzcarraldo, they're insane. And they're destroyed by their obsessions yeah yeah or you know somebody like strozak mm-hmm. or or casper hauser well i think herzog is occasionally victim to an anti-intellectual streak as well he loves the naive innocent well he's someone who will say stuff like oh i hate academics like doing research on my films or kind of breaking them apart i don't think that way when i make them but then like if you read an interview 10 questions later, he'll very eloquently explain why he did something in his movie. Yeah, but I think his films are kind of full of these, like, these archetypes of, mm-hmm. you know, the, the wise, uneducated person, you know, like... Terry Gilliam-ish. Well, yeah, like like one of the films we watched 
we'll get to it, but Invincible has the little brother character, or the White Diamond, his documentary has, you know, this wise native. Who t- and it's a little condescending, I but think. But I think that it's undeniable that he is a great filmmaker. Like, you just need to look at his classics. Like, again, Fitzcarraldo, Aguirre, mm. even Nosferatu. Mm. Like, those are movies that are just testaments to what he can do. Now, did he make some bad movies as well? Of course he did. Not many, though. No, I have to not say, many. his batting average is very strong. Especially in his prime period. I think what I like most about him is his curiosity. He's somebody who has filmed movies on every continent on Earth. You know, he's filmed a movie about the Dalai Lama, for God's sake. He's filmed movies about child soldiers. Uh, He's filmed movies about, you know, explorers in the Antarctic. I think that what like people kind of rebel against and even me when I first discovered him is that kind of pushiness that mm-hmm. when you read about him, there is that kind of like jockish kind of like, yeah, I'm going for it. Yeah. And when you're a nerd, especially if you're a cinephile, that's something you're you're like, ah, no, I don't like that. Get that away from me. Yeah. And I mean, there have definitely been like accusations leveled towards him of, you know, exploiting people. Yeah. I mean, which he always tries to deconstruct himself, like Fitzcarraldo, that he took advantage of the Indian uh, population and that he got some of them killed. Well, which isn't actually true. It's not true. Uh, uh, there was an out of context quote in Burden of Dreams that made it sound like he did. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he paid them very pitiful wages. But then he would counter that by saying, oh, well, you know, uh, th- there was more than they were being paid for mm-hmm. whatever work they were doing or, you know. Uh, there, there was a debate about, you know, were the working conditions unsafe? I'm not really here to litigate that. And like, is he just using them at like, you know, how important are their lives compared to his grand vision to pull a boat over a mountain? Well, there's that idea of exploitation in almost all of Herzog's film. Like even back when he made the documentary about the blind and deaf people, Land of Silence and Darkness, people came after him going, you're exploiting these people like you're making drama out of their lives, mm-hmm. which he is, but he's also you know, giving them a document that they would not have I mean, I in think, any way, yeah, shape, or form. I, I can definitely understand that complaint, but I also think, like, Land of Silence and Darkness is a very beautiful and Moving. empathetic film about, mm-hmm. you know, just, it, it very much humanizes the subjects in it. It shows how responsive they are to touch and, you know, love thing, things that anybody is responsive to. And then other critics would get in his face about, get in his face, <laughs> like, come at me! The idea that, like, he has no qualms about historical accuracy or kind of modifying a the... documentary ethics, exactly, quote unquote. Yeah. yeah. Whatever. <laughs> yeah, I don't care. Well, Me like either. there's a scene in Little Dieter Needs to Fly where Dieter Dangler, who is a POW in Vietnam, like you see him come out through a door and then he opens and closes the door like four or five times being like, I always do this because I realize what a great privilege it is to be able to open and close a door. And of course, he didn't really do that, but they just like wanted they, more drama they, in the movie. They, you know, riffed that together on the set. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, on some level, it's a fabrication, but on some other level, it is actually like it is representative of something he believes. Mm-hmm. We had all this preamble about uh, Werner Herzog himself to finally get to the meat of this podcast, his bad movies, because yes. we watched three of them. Mm-hmm. And the first one that we watched was Scream of Stone, one that I had never heard about. But <laughs> Will Herzog, fan number one, you had heard about this. I'd seen it before. <laughs> it was made in 1991 after that big run of, you know, acclaimed feature films. It was his last feature film for 10 years until Invincible came out. It's a also a German mountain climbing movie. So that 
piques my interest. You're real excited. You love those Lenny, uh... <laughs> Lenny Riefenstahl films. Yeah, well, German mountain climbing films were a huge genre in the 30s, and then here he was bringing them back in the <laughs> 90s. Because he had made a documentary a few years previous, and he had this dream of making a movie on K2, like mm-hmm. going really there and shooting it, and he quickly realized that like that's not going to happen, and he was going to die if he did, was going to do that. I was also interested in it because it had no acclaim, and I hadn't even really heard of it. And it starred such heavyweights as Donald Sutherland and Brad Dourif. <laughs> Brad Dourif, Matilda May, and the King of Kensington, Mr. Al Waxman, is in it. <laughs> because briefly. There, there is some Canadian money in this film. Mm-hmm. And so you need those King <laughs> King of Kensington super fans <laughs> for people that don't know what that is. It was a sitcom that aired in Canada. And then I found out later that this is also a movie that Herzog basically disowned mm-hmm. because for the most part, Herzog has either written his screenplays or he's had a substantial hand in rewriting them. But this one, I don't think he got to make any change to although it does have some very significant herzogian flourishes in it the story is about um some mountain climbers that just want to conquer this impossible to reach peak i believe it's a mountain called saratora mm-hmm. and it includes a real life mountain climber who's uh, i believe it's his acting debut and probably, probably his <laughs> last film <laughs> yeah and there's also a, a veteran italian actor and the the real mountain climber plays this young hotshot who he's mostly used to doing it inside and winning awards and yeah. they're like it's way different on the outside and he's like nah i can do it and the older mountaineer the the purest the Werner herzog surrogate, if you will, is this uh, Italian man who is a renowned, but maybe a little bit past his prime Mm -hmm. mountain climber. There's a love triangle with Matilda May. Mm -hmm. Uh, Famous as the naked space vampire from Life Force. Mm -hmm. And uh, Donald Sutherland is also there to, um, you know, give some voiceover and I guess get people in the cinemas because you need a Hollywood star. He is a corrupt promoter. And what the dramatic kind of center of the film hinges on is that that young mountain climber uh, has an accident on his way up his partner is killed and he comes back down but Donald Sutherland decides we're gonna say that you made it to the top mm-hmm. and that's where all the kind of I want to say drama but that it's very loose in that sense it eventually becomes a mano a mano showdown who's gonna be able to climb Saratora is it gonna be the young hotshot or the old purist they go head to head and there's also another peripheral character played by Brad Dourif who also claims to have once made it to the summit of Saratora lost some fingers uh, on the way and he did it in honor of may west <laughs> yep did he actually make it to the top who knows this is the most herzogian character in the film mm-hmm. uh, he also gives the movie its title because he says the mountain is a scream of stone that's where i stood up and applauded while i was watching <laughs> the movie because you have to do that when they say the title so this is a movie that almost no one likes i kind of like it you know what it was fine yeah. Like, I enjoyed it. I probably enjoyed it more than some of the other movies that we... Wow. Well, Definitely one of them. <laughs> because you do get Herzog capturing this kind of, you know, breathtaking, like, mountain climbing footage when you know he just took a step back and just let the guys do their stuff. The mountain climbing footage is unbelievable, and I'm sorry that I watched it on a VHS rip I believe again. it's the only version that exists. It has no legitimate, like, great-looking Blu-ray because... 
you know, Herzog has kind of disowned it. I would love to see it. I mm-hmm. mean, you know, looking really good. But from what I saw, you know, the mountain climbing footage is incredible. And that's basically what's incredible about the film. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the plot is a little bit corny. The dialogue is is not great. The acting by the two leads is very bad. And you get Donald Sutherland suddenly slipping every 20 minutes with a little bit of voiceover. <laughs> and you're like, oh, wait, yeah, I guess he's narrating this. Uh, Brad Dorif is a lot of fun. Though. Brad Dorif is always fun, and I think who will become a Herzog mainstay. That's right. Uh, he was in a movie by, called I think uh, Wild Blue Yonder, yep, that's which, right. which is also I think one of the bad ones. Mm-hmm. But I think the movie is sort of entertaining. You know, this plot of the two rivals it kind of works. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, it just doesn't have any kind of dramatic heat behind it. Like you don't really care if they make it up to the top of the mountain. It's more kind of languid because like Mm -hmm. the Italian veteran takes a home and settles down. Mm -hmm. Becomes a hermit. Yeah, because he couldn't make it to the top of the Uh, mountain. Until like a badass, he emerges at the end, like a real, a real hero's welcome to climb that mountain. So this is the kind of film that, like, while it's considered one of Herzog's worst, it's really just there. Like, it's not bad enough that you're like, ugh. It's very conventional. Yeah. It's one of his most conventional films. It more or less ended his career as a fiction filmmaker for 10 years. He continued to make documentaries in the 90s, including, uh, you know, the very acclaimed Little Deer Needs to Fly, Lessons in Darkness. I think a lot of the reason he was inactive in the 90s, though, was, you know, maybe a little bit of that bad energy from Fitzcarraldo. Mm, Yeah because it really haunted him for like mm-hmm. decades he was really torn apart in the german press for it i think and he, and burden of dreams probably gave him a bit of a i mean i'm speculating a little bit but i, I believe it to be true he G- gave him a little bit of a reputation as this needless risk taker i mean when you see him interviewed now he often will talk about how sane he is and how i always i always <laughs> make nobody more sane than the person <laughs> that keeps telling you they're sane he always says i always make movies uh under budget and on time mm-hmm. you know like he's clearly reacting a little bit to you know the fallout from Fitzcarraldo and I mean his career when I kind of became aware of him reflected that idea where it was all kind of okay movies like Christian Bale and Rescue Dawn I like Rescue Dawn it's all right like it is that again a movie that like "Ah, there it is on the Rogers video show (laughs) yes (laughs) for five dollars yeah but we weren't heard a king of Rogers video (laughs) he was right because he kind of became popular again in a time where these films would get massive pushes on DVD. Oh yeah, Grizzly Man. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, all of his movies from like the mid to late 2000s were ubiquitous at Rogers Video. Like Wild Blue Yonder was ubiquitous (laughs) for God's sake. Stuff like that. Because it was like, this is an art filmmaker that, you know, the normal populace can't mm. accept. Because, like, Grizzly Man was a huge hit when it came out. Yeah, and that was also around the time when he really started to get, um, quote-unquote, memefied. There was that, I think it was an interview publicizing Grizzly Man where he got shot. You yeah, when that? he was being interviewed by Mark Kermode. Yeah. And he's like, oh, no, I'm fine. It it's is not like a, a little... significant bullet. <laughs> That's right. What do you think of the memefication of Werner Herzog? It's... It's lame. <laughs> well, it is a bit lame. I mean, he's very complicit in it. Yeah, he loves it. Yeah, and you know, it, it's fun. I mean, so, some of the stuff, some of the stories are fun. You know, I mean, but it's just like the same stuff recycled over and over again. Like he's basically a Bill Murray at this point, showing up at parties, <laughs> saying crazy stuff, and then like moving on. Yeah. Like, uh, like one of the quotes you always see is that like Jean-Luc Godard is oh, like... Oh, yeah. Uh, somebody like Jean-Luc Godard is intellectual counterfeit money compared to a good kung fu film. And people go, man, what a crazy sentence. But if you see it in the context of when he said it, he 
a few sentences above it, he went, oh, I like kung fu films, and I like this, and I like that. Like, it makes sense, but when you pull it out of that, it's just crazy old Werner Herzog. Yeah, I, I, even that sentiment. I mean, look, I love kung fu films. Mm-hmm. I don't believe he's ever seen one. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, he's, he's not a movie buff when you see no, him interview. No, he says it. He'll say it over and over again. I mean, like... That's just, they, that, that's that, like, preening anti-intellectualism that he's sometimes guilty of, frankly. I but mean, then you have him, like... You know, doing like that film school stuff that costs like an absurd amount of money oh, for a weekend. Yeah, where where he teaches students to like how to pick a lock yeah, or how to steal like film or that sort of thing. Yeah, that that's like me going, oh, man, Herzog, did you want to open like a restaurant or something? Well, like- my main beef with the memification of Werner Herzog is I feel like it's been leaking into his films in an unproductive way. I think that some of the recent movies especially the documentaries have gotten a little bit self-parodic mm. i mean i love encounters at the end of the world um I, you know i i like cave of forgotten dreams a lot but something like lo and behold the further i get away from it the shoddier it seems really well that, that's it did you ever see it nope. his internet documentary i mean it, everything it, that it, i heard about it was people like making jokes about it yeah it's full of those like little herzog touches or you know him saying little goofy things and you know him him doing kind of kookiness and it really has no thesis yeah i mean that's a problem when you get older right because like Mm. it becomes more difficult to capture the essence of what people loved about you in the first place i mean even when he came back to like feature filmmaking was invincible which Mm. you said before was the first herzog film or even art film that you saw in cinemas right yeah well I, i i'm not sure if it was the very first but it was one of the first i went to see it at the Carlton Cinema on its opening weekend when I was 13. And I was so high on the experience of going to see, like, oh, man, this is a real art movie. Yeah, wow. I mean, I watched it for the first time this week, and it's fine. I'm really glad to see my man Tim Ross back in the starring role that he deserves. (laughs) Yeah, so Invincible, Herzog's big return to dramatic filmmaking in 2001. It's set in the waning days of Weimar Germany as the Nazis are about to take power. And he kind of sets up this dialogue between two big real-life archetypes uh, who who were really uh, well-known figures in sort of the 20s and early 30s in Germany. There is this humble Jewish blacksmith from, from Poland. A strong man. This strong man named Zisha Breitbart, who's played by uh, a real-life strong man named, uh, I don't know how to pronounce it, Yoko Ahola. He's Finnish. He comes to Germany. He's found by a promoter, and he becomes this very popular strong man who is proudly Jewish and wears his Jewishness on his sleeve. And he's set in counterpoint to Hanusen, the mystic, the shady mystic who's in cahoots with the Nazis and who is actually, spoiler, he's a real life historical figure, who cares? <laughs> but 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 spoiler, he's actually Jewish and what? he's hiding. It. And he's played by Tim Roth. Ahola, I think that's his name, right? Uh he's the strong man, was an actual, like, you know, world's strongest man, yeah. Olympian type. And they never came together. He was actually, like, way before that. He was more popularly known in the 20s. Uh, yeah, Z- Zisha Breitbart was. Mm-hmm. They, 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 yeah, they didn't actually, the characters didn't know in real life, but Ahola, the guy who plays him, uh, is not a professional actor. In fact, I don't think he even spoke English before the film started. You said it best, that, like, within the first 15 minutes, you have to take a step back and go, am I watching a Matt Farley movie? <laughs> <laughs> because the dialogue is so stilted. Yeah, it's so stilted it, in ways that it almost feels that it was written to be a comedy. Like, yeah. uh, the strong man has this, like, super intelligent, wise little brother 
who says like crazy stuff. He speaks in parables. <laughs> yes. And just with his like high-pitched little Macaulay Culkin voice. <laughs> and, you know, people will look at him and say, this boy belongs in a university. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, or, you know, everyone talks in so heavy-handedly. It'll be like, you and I, we are both entertainers. And Tim Roth... Uh, his performance is just straight up sooner scenery chewing. I mean, that's every Tim Ross performance, like, right? Just like ah, like you feel like you're gonna choke on screen mu- from the acting that he's doing. Mustache twirling villainy, and the big contrast in uh, Hanusen and Zisha. You know, not only is it what they represent as Jews in the early 30s or the late 20s, but it's also like these acting styles. Mm. Like one of them is a very deliberate and serious and rather hammy actor. And the other is a complete non-professional. And it's strange to see them together. (laughs) It is. Yeah. It's almost like two Herzog styles, like Mm -hmm. butting heads against each other, which is something that he's done before, like Mm -hmm. in Scream of Stone with Donald Sutherland Mm -hmm. and the mountain climber guy. But in this case, in particular, because they're two like main forces throughout the film, it feels, I want to say a little odd in a way that I don't think works for the movie. Yeah. Herzog has a bit of Bresson in him that he likes the non-professional. He likes somebody who can sort of be, but, Unlike Brisson, he actually wants them to act, which can sometimes backfire. I mean, Bruno asks this uh, strange, almost homeless man who starred in Strozak and Casper Hauser has an incredible screen presence. Mm-hmm. Um, the guy plays Zisha, not so much. Very muscular, though. <laughs> Very muscular, and he's kind of sweet. Yeah. And somewhere between them, th- th- there's also a love triangle in this film. Tim Roth's mistress is played by this real-life concert pianist. There's a scene halfway through where she so- shows Zisha a tank full of jellyfish. And she says, oh, I, I wish I could replicate them in, with my music, their purity, their their directness. And I th- actually think that's Herzog's mission statement with this film. He wants something totally earnest and unironic. And Zisha dreams of a train track covered in crabs as the train barrels <laughs> towards it. <laughs> yeah. It almost feels that like if he had made it 20 years before, it would work better than it does when he's like Mm -hmm. there's like almost like the tentacles of hollywood's involvement getting Mm. around the picture and i'm sure herzog would argue against that but tim ross is right there and that's just reminding me throughout he doesn't quite cast the spell over this movie that he does in some of his earlier films a movie like fitzcarraldo has this like hypnotic power to it and there's a sort of consistency to its style this one yeah, you know, as you said, part of it feels very Herzog-y and part of it feels like a Hollywood biopic. Mm-hmm. Part of it feels like, yeah, like like a Schindler's List or a The Pianist type film. And I think that, like, its dramatic denouement is very interesting in the way that it plays out. Mm-hmm. But, like, it's just, like, it takes a while to get there mm-hmm. and it feels like there's detours. And, like, Herzog films always have detours, but they're usually very interesting. Uh-huh. And here it's almost like, all right, get along with it. And because you're getting these biopic beats... They're just knocking heads against each other. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a reason this film isn't held in very high regard either, even though that it has great cover art, which actually promised me something that I didn't get in the film, which <laughs> was like a Dr. Mabuse style kind of Weimar era German film, which this film is not. Yeah. <laughs> I think the movie is very unsubtle, and to some extent, it benefits from an unsubtle treatment. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's a movie that kind of wants to be this parable about these two clashing archetypes, but doesn't fully work. Nah, it doesn't. So, but now, speaking of great Herzog films, Salt and Fire. Yes. You saw this at TIFF. 
You're excited. New Herzog is coming out. Well, going to buy my $70 ticket. It played the second Thursday of TIFF. Mm-hmm. So I knew that's probably a bad song. <laughs> but this has like superstars in the cast. You got Michael Shannon, a German actor I don't know. I looked up her credits and she has like a hundred of them. Mm. English, not her strong suit. <laughs> no. Gail Garcia Bernal. Yep. Who, you know, showed up for a day or two, shot a bunch of scenes and went on his way. And in a supporting role, Lawrence Krauss, the I... famous, I believe he's a physicist. Mm. Oh, uh, yes, that's right. Also, not an actor. Yeah. And he was recently Me Too'd, I'm sorry to say. <laughs> really? Yes. So this is a film that was in like, again, 15 minutes. Reminded me of something that... I see a lot and it always saddens me when I'm reminded of it, which is, ugh, this feels like late period Dario Argento. Oh yeah, how would you define that? A seemingly inability to understand how a movie is supposed to proceed and when it's coupled with performances that are all over the map and this cheap digital look come together to make something that is like, ugh. This is not good. And not in an interesting way either. Just in a like, ooh, man, I don't know what you guys are trying to do, but you are not succeeding kind of way. The performances in the movie are kind of kind of like some of the performances that would have been in earlier Herzog movies. But yeah, there's something kind of like unforgiving about the digital cinematography. It's harder to create that otherworldly atmosphere with it. And like Herzog loves to capture stuff in like long takes because his love of theater comes out that way with no cutting. But in this, it feels like someone just cheaply moving a digital camera around and Mm. kind of like there wasn't a guide or idea so it just feels all over the place what's the movie about uh what is the movie about i was (laughs) hoping that you were going to illustrate um exactly its themes and ideas because if you look on imdb the film seems to be about like an organization that realizes the earth is going to end soon kind of a terrorist organization uh you know, Michael Shannon is this person who abducts this this scientist, and they have these long and very stylized conversations together about environmental doom. And what ends up happening is that the um, scientist, played by Veronica Ferres, is carted out to the, um, I guess, the salt flats? Yeah, you've seen it in a million car commercials. And is left on a small island with two young boys who are going blind. And boy, we get a lot of time with them and the <laughs> just I mean, that's hanging the center around. of the movie. That's yeah. like she just hangs out with them and she doesn't know if someone's going to come and save her. She believes that she may die. Mm. And that seems like such a Herzogian like kind of idea that it turns into parody. Mm-hmm. Like, if you were going to make fun of Herzog, this is the movie that you would make. Mm-hmm. And it all <laughs> it all comes to a finale where Michael Shannon shows up and goes, oh, thank you for taking care of my boys. They will always remember this time. Now we must communicate with the aliens above. How shall we do this? They take a bottle of champagne and they put it on a uh, electric wheelchair and just let it go out into the desert. That is such self-parody. That's, that's like... <laughs> Oh, what's the what's the indelible Herzogian image that I can put in this movie? Uh, a bottle of champagne on a wheelchair going into the distance. It's like that penguin it encounters at the end of the world. I mean, like, maybe Herzog, he just doesn't know where to go to at this point, and he just wants to give people what they expect of him. Like, I looked up his uh, next movie, and it's a film called... Uh, Fordlandia, unfortunately not about Toronto's ex-mayor Robert Ford. 
It's a powerful American automaker. Henry Ford attempts to build a factory in the Brazilian rainforest. Sounds familiar. I'm like, ah, Herzog. He's just like, they want me to play the hits. I'll play the hits. (laughs) But I feel like it'll be like shitty digital photography. There'll be a bunch of stars and Mm non-actors. And it just won't work as well as his old stuff did. I mean, you watch Queen of the Desert that came out. I watched 90 minutes of Queen of the Desert. I still have a half hour left to go. I'm sorry. It was really killing me. It's so boring. I mean, like, Herzog <laughs> seems to be almost a filmmaker at this point in his career, kind of floundering to figure out what to do. Like, Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans. Which I love. And But that also feels yeah. like a very calculated move, right? Yeah. And to go out on the circuit and be like, well, I didn't even see the Abel Ferreira movie. Because, yeah, yeah. like, he wants to give people what they want of him, which is this weirdness. Or, like, My Son, My Son, What Have You Done? Yeah. Which is, like, produced by David Lynch and is, like... I think that one works better than Salt and Fire, even though it's, like, touching those elements of yeah. it like it's not in full-blown parody mode yet. the weird thing about queen of the desert is it doesn't feel very herzogian if you told me he directed it and, and like i didn't know it i would be surprised listen he needs to pay for those restaurants why else would he start those film schools and stuff like that yeah which i don't know how much it is i, I feel it's probably like ten thousand dollars or something like that yeah to go down for a weekend mm-hmm. but is he just a filmmaker who has reached the point that like he doesn't have anything to say anymore i don't i don't know um I think he is still capable of greatness. I mean, Into the Abyss, a documentary, is fantastic. I, I loved it very much. And uh, also in, Into the Inferno, the volcano documentary, I think is good fun. Uh, I think he's at his best when he is at his most modest as a filmmaker. Into the Abyss, his death row documentary, you know, he he's less of a presence in it than he is in a lot of his other movies where he's like cracking jokes and doing doing weird <laughs> it's stuff. Thick. Like he didn't get it out of his system when he made like Incident at Loch Ness yeah. and the Grand. I do think something kind of changed in him after Fitzcarraldo, though. Mm. I think he became more of a more of a character after that mm-hmm. and he and he became a little bit more calculated i love many of his films after Fitzcarraldo. i think he's been at least interesting throughout his career but there i think there is a turning point there well if you look at like the history of his career he's not a director that came out fully formed either he'll talk a lot about how his early films the german critics had no interest in him and it's actually only when international audiences mm. accepted aguirre that like germany got behind him and said like, oh no, we like your movies now. He actually complains that Aguirre, it actually premiered in theaters and then was on television the same night in Germany, which like destroyed, in his opinion, theatrical chances of it. You know, one of the things I like about Herzog is that he's a film, he's not a cinephile uh, and his films don't seem to bear a lot of recognizable influences, at least not cinematic influences. How amazing would it be like if he did admit eventually he's like, no, I love cinema. I watch everything. I mean, I would be surprised because it's not reflected in his films. No, he's always straining to like do something different yeah and i also feel like he's not necessarily a director who speaks the language of cinema in the way that somebody like an alfred hitchcock or a roman polanski does like those are filmmakers who like you know it's all about like the cutting and the camera angles and you know they 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 communicate and are masters of like building tension herzog is more of a landscape painter what we've seen as the years have gone by is that that Herzog has become a genre in of itself. Uh Like you've talked about like, ah, that's a Herzogian touch or this or that. Mm. So like, it's almost as if like, as his career has gone on, he's kind of like solidified in that way. Well, I guess another good thing about him, which can also be a bad thing about him is he has a unique take on the world and he's always showing you things from 
uh, a different off-kilter perspective. I mean, there's a, a beautiful moment in Encounters at the end of the world when, you know, he's has the footage under the ice in the Antarctic and he talks about like the frozen sky or in Wild Blue Yonder, which I don't think is that great a movie, but Wild Blue Yonder is a science fiction film that's mostly just Brad Dourif ranting in these abandoned locations. But he'll show you footage from a space mission, like anti-gravity footage in a spacecraft. And then he'll show you again, footage of in the Antarctic with that frozen sky. And he's making you look at those as if they're like otherworldly, like they're dispatches from an alien world or lessons of darkness where he shows the burning oil fields as being like part of an alien civilization. Herzog loves to capture landscapes and show them in ways that feel so, like you said, alien Mm -hmm. that it's new to us. And I think that maybe the frustration, I don't know if he has, but like us as viewers at this point is that he's trying to find different ways to keep doing that. And he just can't, lock in he has often said that uh society is starved for new images and he feels that it's his duty to give us new images and oftentimes in his documentaries he will rant against things like uh in encounters at the end of the world there's the part where he talks about uh this town is infected by the abominations of yoga studios or stuff like uh, that which is is annoying when when you put it that way but i him saying like wrestling that is the dregs of humanity that's why you should watch it to see what the pulse is right now i think uh i, I would like to close with a thought that when he talks about how society needs new images and we're being in our terrible culture, we're being starved for images and our imaginations are being closed off and our capacity for new images is being closed off. I think his real enemy is capitalism. Oh, you think so? Well, you know, it's it's gentrification. It's the closing of uh, the of the mind, the the limiting of what is possible, the idea that capitalism is the best system that can be or that ever will be like how is it possible to create new images if if that is what we're told? So that's my thought. <laughs> I agree with you, Will. However, I don't think Herzog is consciously political, and uh, I feel like he might not even realize <laughs> realize that his enemy is capitalism. All right. Okay. Well, that's the end of this debate. Let's move on to the other player. <laughs> uh, no, I agree with you. And um, that's why, like, the fact that Herzog has been playing the game of capitalism so much more lately, <laughs> like the memification, that's what's, you know, a little dispirit. That's why it's so depressing to me that he made that internet documentary that was like, you know, commissioned by, I don't <laughs> like, know, some company. Probably like MySpace or something like yeah, that. Yeah, and like Elon Musk is in it. I <laughs> yeah. mean, fuck that shit. <laughs> okay, so you can send us letters as per usual to importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And uh, this week, our Patreon is about kind of forgotten oddities Mm. um films that i don't think me and will would consider classics but we wanted to talk a little bit about so we watched liquid sky Mm -hmm. which is a movie that's getting a lot of attention these days and we watched a couple of other ones that are going to be mysteries (laughs) yeah you have to actually pay and become a patreon subscriber if you want to hear them i can promise you that one of them you've probably never heard of like guaranteed probably most of them yeah probably most of them you're right yeah so discoveries ahoy yeah so check it out it's at patreon.com slash important cinema club podcast and remember we want 150 subscribers this summer and we're pushing for it get on there a bunch of people recently became patreon subscribers and i really appreciate it but we need more it's not enough Boy, it'll be embarrassing if we don't get there. 250? Yeah. I've looked at graphs and it's interesting how like every month it goes up higher, almost the exact same level, which is weird, which makes me think that like 
we're just doing this one thing and we're doing it okay and that's getting more and more people but we want it to shoot up into the stratosphere all right again yeah celebrities that's the only way we can do it all right if you know a celebrity let's get them on the show yeah <laughs> on the show yeah. yeah then they'll retweet it and stuff like yeah, that yeah, yeah. We'll be... who could we do roger corman if he wants to come on you're a good friend with him you've interviewed him no i want to do uh, like a big star like jennifer lawrence or brad pitt <laughs> or or let's Darren Aronofsky. let I, I don't know like i have a movie star like a chris mm. pratt let's get somebody who's famous yeah like who needs to advertise uh, stuff that's coming up? Um, uh, you know, summer movies that yeah. are about to be released. Who, who are the big stars? Tom Cruise. Let's get Tom Cruise. Mission Impossible's coming out. Tom Cruise, come on here. That, this is called- Listen, you only did one other podcast, The Nerdist. Not looking too good right now. Yeah. Come and do the Import Cinema Club. <laughs> uh, we're, uh, and, you know, that'll put your, your name back on <laughs> Is that the problem which we're making that if Tom Cruise comes on this podcast? We will make him famous. <laughs> <laughs> so, Tom, give us a ring. Yeah. Um, and so next week... If we get to 200 Patreon subscribers, we get Tom Cruise on the podcast. <laughs> Prom- a- promising it now. <laughs> I think, I Are think- we going to do a Tim and Eric style? Like, look, it's Tom Cruise. It's really Joe Estevez. <laughs> I would love if Joe Estevez came on this podcast. Well, he's very gettable, I think. Yeah, you think so? Yeah. Uh, I need to read his uh, autobiography. Isn't it like, uh, it's like polishing off the sheen or something like that? Oh, nice. <laughs> Did, what, you, giving Charlie Sheen a blowjob? <laughs> no. Is that what that means? <laughs> it means uh, stepping out of the shadow of his brother oh. Martin Sheen. Well, I mean, he good, didn't really. Good luck. <laughs> I love Joe Estevez. Yeah, he's great. So next week, we're talking about Bud Bedecker who's a Western director. And you may not have heard of him because he doesn't really have that stature that someone like Sergio Leone or Clint Eastwood or even like a Don Siegel has. But he's one that's had an impact on all these filmmakers. Mm-hmm. Like they released a DVD set a few years back and like Clint Eastwood was on it, Martin Scorsese was on it. Like all these people talking about how Bedecker was so important for them. Mm-hmm. Is he a filmmaker you're very familiar with? I've him? never seen a single one of his films and that's why I want to do this. I want to get into it. It's weird because like his films aren't in that kind of like public consciousness, like Ride Lonesome, The Tall T. I think he's one of those like Cahiers de Cinema guys. Mm, you know? His films are very familiar. I know I've watched a couple, but I don't know which ones I've watched. Okay. So I'm gonna do a bunch like Ride Lonesome, The Tall T. Uh, there was a Blu-ray that was recently put out in the UK, but it's region free. And are you gonna be watching them off of that? Or? Yeah. And I'm really glad because for some reason we haven't done any Western filmmakers or the Western genre at all. Wow, is that true? Which is yeah. A massive favorite of mine, unless you count Clint Eastwood. Yeah, right. And that was way early. But, mm-hmm. like, I love Westerns, uh, American Westerns, Spaghetti Westerns, Euro Westerns. Love them all. Any, yeah. And it's weird that I haven't talked about them, but that's what we're going to be doing next week. So, again, my name's Justin Glue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Welcome to the Important Cinema Club Book Club. <laughs> yeah! We're talking about... <laughs> We're talk- oh man, Wishbone's here! We're talking about <laughs> what's the story, Wishbone? You gotta change it though, like what's the story, you important cinema club? <laughs> and just like Wishbone, when you listen to this ten years from now, we will both have passed on. It was uh, the great John Waters who said, "If you go home with somebody and don't see books on their shelf, don't fuck them." Mm-hmm. 
and then he stepped back from that and he went what am i saying fuck them anyway <laughs> like why would you not do that i did i did see him say that yes <laughs> uh but we're gonna be talking about some books we've read lately that we would like to talk about and recommend and uh because you know cinema is about more than just films it's also about reading i'll start by saying that i just read a book called bruce lee a life by matthew polly uh, uh, uh another bruce lee biography oh wait is there something different about this one this is frankly the first good bruce lee biography which is crazy because like the fact that there's a whole genre about his life and no one sat down and went all right let's just do this right yeah no really serious books there are lots of books that are you know collections of his writings fluffy kind of like overviews Uh, yeah some sort of fanzine-ish stuff because a lot of the books were either they were cash-ins or they were written with the cooperation of his estate so useless Mm -hmm. uh this book is you know a 600 page doorstopper that goes from cradle to grave uh you learn it answers all the questions that i had about him it talks a lot about his acting career as a child weirdly 550 pages are spent on how he died (laughs) (laughs) there is actually a lot about how he died i mean because people are obsessed with that and he comes up with a compelling new theory for how he might have died really yes Uh, i'll tell you off mike because i don't okay you want people to get the book yeah but it's the most convincing explanation i've heard yet and is it one you've heard before or no i haven't heard it before but it's like when he says that he addresses all the popular theories about why he died including the, the official explanation yeah but he comes up with one that is the most convincing Huh. Bruce Lee comes across as a bit of a brat, quite arrogant. He's always come, at, come yeah. across that way, I feel. Yeah, a bit of a womanizer. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, the, the book smartly deals with his sort of uh, trans-Pacific status. Um, I'm going to say something that's absolutely horrifying. So, like, trigger warning, folks. This is, this is very unpleasant. He got circumcised in his 20s because he wanted to look more American. Uh... That, I don't know if that's like a huge trigger warning, but it's disgusting in a way. Or well, it's not disgusting. It's like it's like you hear that. And it's like oh my god. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess it happens, right? He wanted to look more American, though. Wow, isn't that incredible? That's crazy. So anyway, for details like that and more, I can't recommend the book enough. It has all you need to know about Bruce Lee. I can't believe you plowed through it so fast. It feels just like a week ago that you got it. Oh god, you just like devoured. It? Absolutely. <laughs> what about Bruce Floytation? How much does it get into that? Uh, like you know a couple paragraphs ah, well we still have to wait for that promised bruce exploitation bible that uh, keeps like hinting at tantalizingly out of reach i know that the guy i don't remember his name but he has like the bruce exploitation website yeah has been promising to write it for like ages it's weird that no like fly by night person just did like a create space like book and just like just did it right? yeah yeah i mean i feel like you could do it uh, like maybe i will yeah i mean there are always so many things to say about bruce exploitation why you're, not you're gonna like um do a bruce exploitation on the bruce exploitation <laughs> Um, and then after reading Matthew Polly's book, uh, last night I watched Return of the Dragon or Way of the Dragon, which I've probably seen half a dozen times over the years. And not that it's very good. And you were watching it and you were going like, man, he was circumcised. <laughs> <laughs> the thought did cross my mind. Uh, but I was looking wa- for that shape on Blu-ray. Well, I was watching Way of the Dragon. And because there are so few Bruce Lee movies, you tend to, you know, even the ones that aren't that great, which are all of them, mm-hmm. you, you watch a lot because it's all you have. Yeah. And... I was watching this thinking, geez, this really is not very good. <laughs> the first I mean, the first 30 minutes of Way of the Dragon are... When is he gonna fight? I know. The comedy is so bad. The scenes at the airport at the beginning of the movie aren't even in focus. <laughs> I mean, like Bruce Lee, though, like the directors that he worked with was like Lo Wei, who was shit yeah. and didn't care. 
Robert Klaus, who his heart was in the right place, not a good filmmaker. And Bruce Lee, yeah, not a good it. filmmaker. <laughs> I, I mean, Enter the Dragon, I think, is by default the best. Mm-hmm. And even that is like a ramshackle concoction that has really charismatic performances and iconic moments. If he's got, So Bruce Lee completed four movies, and I think if you put together all the good stuff, you've got two good movies. Mm-hmm. One and a half. <laughs> One and a half. I don't know, like half of Enter the Dragon, you know, maybe 20 minutes of uh, Fist of Fury, 20 minutes of Way of the Dragon, 10 minutes of The Big Boss. Can we put them together? Call it Game of Death 4? Yeah. I'm sure there's a Game of Death 3. Yeah. <laughs> Revenge of the Game of Death. <laughs> Have you read anything lately? Yeah. So uh, as I've been doing lately, I've been going to the uh, York University Library and just I'm at the level where it's anything eye level as I walk through the aisles looking for my books. Mm -hmm. And I came across the tantalizingly titled Saved from Oblivion, an autobiography. And as I will do, if the title catches my eye, I picked it up. It was a very slim volume. And it actually had an introduction by Kevin Bronlow, who most famous as the man who saved Abel Gantz's Napoleon. He wrote probably like the primer on early cinema the parade goes by mm. he's like the historian extraordinaire he did an amazing documentary about charlie chaplin mm. called unknown chaplin where he found many of chaplin's surviving outtakes and through them was able to show how chaplin created movies and chaplin created movies just by kind of improvising them by starting with a gag and then building the movie out from there so this guy does this forward where he talks about how like this director has been forgotten, and he only came into uh, Kevin Bronlow's mind because they were interviewing David Lean, and David Lean said, oh, one of my favorite filmmakers is named Bernard Vorhaus. And Kevin Bronlow was like, well, I don't know who that is. Like, I've never heard of him. And when he did research, he discovered that Bernard Vorhaus made a bunch of quota quickies because in Britain during World War One and World War Two, you could only show British movies. And essentially what filmmakers from around the globe figured out was, oh, we should get people to make uh, movies in places like Canada. Mm-hmm. And we should also get filmmakers to come and just do them really fast because they have to accept it because we need content. Mm-hmm. So Bernard Verhaus made a bunch of films like that. And what Kevin Brownlow discovered was that the filmmaker was still alive. He was 95 years old. And he was still kicking. I believe he was still working. And he got him to write an autobiography. And what this biography is, is the document of a journeyman director <laughs> in these really crazy events. So you get him during World War II and he's shooting in Austria. And the guys that he's doing his ski stuff with, he's shooting like a ski adventure picture, are revealed to be Jewish people. So they get chased by Nazis with machine oh, wow. guns. Um, you get him as a filmmaker who he shot this like train picture and he needed like outside shots. So he just went with his wife and like put the camera on the tracks as the train was coming toward them and just ran off uh, before it arrived. He's also a filmmaker that every movie that he made, his write-up on it ends with, well, I would have liked to do this or that, but you know, I had to blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Like the definition of a journeyman filmmaker. Yeah. And I think that like the book is very short, which is good. It does get into his personal life because this is definitely a man writing something like at the end of his days. So you get like a whole chapter about him as a kid and you're like, man, no, thank you. I'd like to skip that. Or him and his wife, which he admits... And you can feel almost the tears draping down his face that, like, he cheated on her. And it was really difficult when she found out. And he admits that, like, and I cheated on her a lot as time went on. Like, I couldn't help myself. <laughs> so on and so forth. 
And what's really interesting about him is that he was still very politically, like, conscious. And that actually led to his filmmaking career just ending because he was called out during the blacklist. Mm. And because of that, he had to go to a different country. And he didn't have a passport. And he had to do something different to make money. And he just never really got back into film. He became an architect. He would, like, flip houses mm. is basically what he ended up doing. But it's, like, a fascinating life. And if you can somehow come across this book, I would highly recommend it. Because, like, this perspective on a filmmaker is really really interesting none of his movies are available on dvd a few of them are released on like vhs probably his most famous one is called the ghost camera and was like like again like a quote a quickie he co-directed a film with edgar g elmer oh wow uh what was it called that really uh it was like so young so dangerous or something like that i I don't even know it jeez and he doesn't mention edgar g elmer in the book. Ouch. Yeah, he does. Does he mention the movie? Uh, he does, yeah. And he mentions filming it and stuff like that. Like, he's, uh, you know, he's writing his biography, so he'll always mention how he, like, did this one special thing to give the movie a little bit of spice. But then when you watch the film, you're like, yeah, yeah, it's fine. Like, yeah. And, I mean, what's really interesting, too, is that he was actually an American hmm. who ended up in Britain. So you get that, like, stranger in a strange land kind of thing going on as well. Oh, sounds Have you watched any of his movies? I did. I watched uh, The Last Journey, which is his train film, and it was fine yeah and like the fact that it was fine and people are like oh this is his best in the foreword they're like we're gonna have to rewrite film history now that we know about this guy it's like whoa slow your horses (laughs) but the fact that he like a 95 year old was able to look back and write about his life in this way it's something you don't hear about a lot Mm -hmm. and the fact that this book exists it was published by scarecrow press who are the kings of publishing like oh this guy was a screenwriter for poverty row so let's give him a book and publish it (laughs) or let's publish um kurt siodmax autobiography which is like 800 pages it's good that those places exist even if those these books will disappear and you can only get them for like 500 dollars. well folks next time you're at your barnes and noble that's two (laughs) recommendations for you check them out